0: You'll often hear our CEO, Joe Bundrant say that nothing happens at Trident Seafoods until the fish comes over the rail. But it's one thing to catch fish, it's another thing to sell it. Join us for chapter 10, On the Road, to learn about the early days of selling fish. These relied on handwritten orders, handshakes, dinner meetings, and eye-to-eye negotiations.
1: Chapter 10, On the Road, Country Boys Selling Fish. Catching fish is one thing, selling fish is another. Many seafood consumers still harbor the romantic vision of the fleet coming in to offload their fresh harvest at a local pierside auction, where fishmongers haggle over prices and distribute the catch of the day to nearby seafood restaurants and retailers. It still happens but that's the exception, not the rule. Given the magnitude of the North Pacific resource and the remote nature of Alaska fisheries, the majority of the catch is delivered in large volumes that require quick processing into stable products in bulk form that can maintain their integrity and their value for at least a year. Fishing seasons are often compressed for biological reasons. Salmon, for instance, are driven by their natural spawning migration which schools them together and permits an efficient harvest relatively close to shore. By the time they head for their natal streams, the salmon are large, their flesh is fat and sweet and their roe is mature and ideal for caviar. It's truly a blessing that fish such as these are driven to swim to the fishermen, but to keep up with the salmon run, fishermen and processors have to do their work in a hurry. The majority of Alaska salmon are harvested during June, July, and August. And for those three months, the primary focus of the industry is catching and processing. Unlike beef, pork, and poultry, wild salmon don't hang around waiting to be slaughtered. Instead, they storm the beach by the millions, driven by their own biological clocks, and racing hell-bent for the rivers and hatcheries where they were born. Catching those fish and preserving their quality is the industry's top priority because once the salmon have gone up the rivers, the game is over for another year. Selling those fish is equally important, but much of that comes later. On average, only about 8% of Alaska's annual salmon production is sold fresh. Preseason commitments and in-season trading can move a good portion of the canned and frozen pack before New Year's, but selling salmon is a year-round activity. After all, there's a lot of salmon to sell. In 2010, Alaska fishermen harvested nearly 170 million wild salmon with a total weight of more than 800 million pounds. Computerization and the internet have simplified the administrative tasks associated with selling fish and tracking fish shipments, but selling seafood has always involved trust. A container of frozen-headed and gutted sockeye is only as valuable as the quality of the fish inside. Maintaining the value of those fish is important. Maintaining the reputation of the company and sustaining healthy sales volumes year after year is also important. This requires strong customer relationships, and oftentimes, the best way to build those relationships is face-to-face. Before Trident Seafoods bought its first fax machine, Post-season sales relied on handwritten orders, handshakes, dinner meetings, and eye-to-eye negotiations. Sales involved travel and a different set of skills than running a crab boat or managing the production line. Knowing one's product is always a good thing. Nevertheless, Trident's early partners learned the fishing and the fish processing business first, and sharpening sales tactics and honing customer relationships followed. Selling fish required time on the road, and as was the case with the trips to Alaska, it was hard to come back from a sales trip without a few stories to share. Ed and I were on a 14-day, 14-city trip, Bundren recalled, visiting four or five customers per city. I'm not sure how many days we were into it by the time we got to New York, but we'd started out in Florida, so we must have been traveling about 10 days by then, and we were dog-tired. Bundrant was on the road with Ed Perry, who joined the company in 1974 when Trident acquired San Juan Seafoods, Perry's salmon processing operation, based in Bellingham, Washington. This was the merger that brought Trident into the salmon business. It was the first of many acquisitions that expanded Trident's product mix and its business universe far beyond King Crab. But the company was young, and so were Perry and Bundrant when they set out for their East Coast whirlwind sales tour. The majority of the domestic salmon market at the time was focused on two product forms, canned and smoked. Canned sales were skewed toward the South. The smoked salmon business focused on the Northeast, with the majority of the business coming from regional smoked salmon producers that catered to Jewish clientele. The market was steeped in tradition, and the buyers weren't interested in salmon that was smoked on the West Coast. Instead, they bought large quantities of frozen and brined salmon, which they then prepared in their own smokehouses. Collectively, they were known as the smokers. Other East Coast wholesalers were also taking an interest in the high-quality frozen salmon and crab being produced at plants in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska. Chuck Bundren and Ed Perry were doing their best to sell it to them. They knew plenty about the fish long before they got to New York, but they were still in training for life on the streets of the Big Apple. We'd already gone to Boston, and we'd missed seeing a big client there, Crocker and Windsor, Bennett recalled. As it turned out, they happened to be visiting New York, so we arranged to have dinner with them the next day in a pretty nice hotel. Their names were Sam Bloom and Zelda, his wife. Zelda was a real Jewish mother type, and she immediately adopted Ed and me. She figured she was going to have to protect these poor little boys from the West Coast. She kept saying, you got to watch it, boys. You better watch it. You can get rolled in this town. You're in New York City, and you've got to watch yourself now. You've got to be careful. All night long, she kept drilling this into us, and we'd had a couple of drinks. So we started to get into this elevator to our rooms, and were tired. It was about 10 o'clock. We're on the first floor, and we've got to go up to the 18th floor. The elevator stops at the second floor. These two guys get on, and they are two of the biggest, greasiest-looking goons you ever saw in your life. Big trench coats, you know, the Italian mafia-looking type. It's important to remember here that Chuck Bundrant grew up in rural Indiana and Tennessee, and as worldly as he might have imagined himself after driving across the country to Seattle, braving the bar scenes in Seward and Kodiak, and facing the elements in the Gulf of Alaska, what Zelda recognized across the table at the hotel in New York was a country boy in a business suit. Ed Perry, Chuck's partner, was born in Shamit, Montana, population 524. He'd been around a bit too, but Zelda could tell he wasn't from the city either. Zelda was doing her best to drum some street smarts into Chuck and Ed because she could tell these two boys needed some mothering. What Zelda didn't understand was that these particular country boys actually listened to their mothers and maybe they'd been listening too carefully to her warnings. By the time the two trench coats joined them in the elevator, they were on full country boy alert, or maybe it was just Chuck. After all night long of hearing, be careful, be careful, I just knew this son of a bitch had a gun, Bundert recalled. So when he pulled his hand out of his pocket and reached over to poke the elevator button, it looked to me like he'd pulled a gun. I let out a loud roar and gave him a judo chop to his right forearm. Bundert's response apparently served its purpose, not only knocking the invisible gun out of the stranger's hand, but also striking a primal nerve somewhere deep in the core of the men in trench coats and in Ed Perry, too. Bundren's war cry erupted just as the elevator door shut and the car was on its way up before anyone could find the handle to their senses and regain composure. Now we've got four guys in this elevator, all backed up against the four walls, Bunnert recalled. Ed figured out what was going on first and starts to laugh. But these two big goons didn't think it was very funny. Their floor was the 22nd floor. Ours was 18. And that was a long ride to 18, staring each other down. Ed was laughing so hard the tears were rolling down his face. I'll never forget Zelda. She really got to me. Chuck and Ed's next stop was Detroit. Once again, Ed was trying to strengthen his previous relationships with the buyers, and Bundren was riding shotgun. At the time, Ed was trying to sell salmon to these smokers, and the smokers were in the most godforsaken parts of the city, Bundren recalled. We'd get in there at night, and we'd ask the maitre d' or a cop how to get there and the cop might say, well, you're not going to go down there without some kind of escort, are you? I wouldn't go down there myself. Bundren and Perry knew they had to go down there if they wanted to sell their salmon, but the last thing Chuck wanted was to be stuck on the street after dark in a rough part of town without a phone or transportation. While there were plenty of taxis available, not all of the drivers wanted to take them where they wanted to go, and the ones who were willing to take them didn't want to hang around too long. The smokehouse buildings typically didn't have storefronts that anyone could just walk into. You'd have to ring a buzzer or knock on a locked door until somebody came to let you in. What if the cab left and nobody came to open the door? It was one of those situations where hardware might come in handy. Alaska was a rough and tumble place, full of wild animals, cash, and uncertainty. It wasn't uncommon for fishermen and residents to be armed, and Bundrent was no exception. Life on the road could be dangerous, too. Now, in those days, I was packing, as Bunnett liked to put it. It was before 9-11, and you could pack a gun. I had my gun right in my briefcase. So we get in this cab, and I'm sitting on somebody's wallet. I looked at it, and looked at the driver, and I figured, no, if I give this driver the wallet full of money, the guy who lost it will never see it again. So we get to City Smoked Fish, and I hold a gun on the taxicab driver to make sure he didn't leave us until we got inside. Ed knocks on the door, and they'd opened up this slot in the door to see who it was before they let you in, and that's a fact. So we go into this ante room, and the first person I talked to, this receptionist, was a guy. I told him I found the wallet in the taxicab, and I didn't want to give it to the taxicab driver because he didn't look all that square. I asked him if we could call the guy who'd lost it. He flipped out a badge and he said he was a night dispatcher for the police force and he'd see that the guy got his wallet. And sure enough, about three weeks later, after we get back, I get this nice letter from the guy saying, thank you, and here's a $20 bill. Then the next day, I get a letter to the president of Trident Seafoods commending his employee named Chuck Bundren for turning in his wallet. He didn't realize who I was. I should have framed that one it was probably the nicest letter I ever got. Another memorable road trip was one that Chuck and Corey Ness took together when they were building the Bountiful, Trident's second new crab catcher processor in Tell City, Indiana. The year was 1978, and the two partners were taking a few days off from the shipyard to visit Bundren's parents at the family farm in Tennessee. We took a trip down to Tennessee to visit my mom and dad, Bundrant recalled. Along the way, Corey and I bought a couple of pear trees somewhere in northwest Tennessee, and we planted them at the farm when we got there. One of them made it, and one of them didn't. I always told my mom that the one that made it was Corey's. The partnership between Chuck and Corey ran deep. They looked out for each other and compromised when necessary. So it was no big inconvenience for Corey when Chuck wanted to take a break during the drive south and catch a basketball game on TV. When it comes to sports, Bundren has always been loyal to the home team. And the Seattle Supersonics were having a heck of a run at the time. Coach Lenny Wilkins had downtown Freddie Brown, Dennis Johnson, Jack Sigma, and Slick Watts on their way to another playoff. And Sonic fans were dialed in tight. Nobody wanted to miss a single game. The Sonics were playing basketball, and I remember it was colder than hell. It was 20 degrees, Bundren recalled. We were going through the northern part of Tennessee, it was almost the Kentucky line, and the game was going to start pretty quick. So I figured we'd see if we could find a motel and watch it in the lobby. So we find this motel and asked if they had a TV in the lobby. The woman said, no, we don't. So I asked, do you have TV in your rooms? And she said, yes, we do. I said, how much are your rooms? They were $19, and I looked at Corey and said, we can afford that. Then I told her we'd just need it for a short time because we just wanted to watch the ball game. I could see what she was thinking, but I figured it was going right over Corey's head, my religious Norwegian buddy. But I'll never forget we were walking around to this room and when we turned the corner on the sidewalk, this wind was coming right out of the north and it was blowing twenty miles per hour and it's twenty degrees. So the wind chill factor is below zero. We've got our overcoats on and everything and I go in and flip on the TV. Then I go to shut the door and Corey says, leave the door open. That gal thinks we're queers. They watch the whole game, sitting in their overcoats with the door wide open.
0: Hope that you enjoyed Chapter 10, On the Road. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you can be the first to know when our next episode, Bristol Bay Salmon, is released on Wednesday, March 11th. We appreciate you joining us, and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deckload of dreams.